Amen. So, uh, funny story. So week one, yeah, that's good. Week one, you know, you have to have it low enough so I can yell. You know, that's good. So the first week in this series, uh, Pastor Matt preached on integrity, right? You remember that? I is for integrity. And so uh, I'm putting the stuff out for tonight, getting ready, and I got the baskets there with the clipboards in it, and I'm bringing them over to put on the table, and a bunch of the clipboards fall out all over the floor, so that made me super happy. So I'm picking up all the clipboards, and I know what you're thinking. Right here is where he's lost his integrity. No, that's not the story. It could be, but it's not. So I'm picking it up, and I pick up one of the clipboards, and one of you, please, God, don't tell me who you are. You wrote integrity with your pen on the clipboard. I literally laughed for 15 minutes. I'm like, you're defacing church property with the word integrity during a message on integrity. Like, how jacked up is that? I just thought that was super hilarious. In a not healthy way, but very hilarious. I thought, man, I should take a picture of this and just post it on the church Facebook page and not say a word. Just go, let that just speak for itself. Like, integrity graffiti. Okay. All right. Anyway, I enjoyed it. Thank you for that. I needed a laugh. It's been a rough week. Amen. All right. Let's get to work. So there can be no love. Without this, there could be love, but it can't be true love. It can't be real love. It can't be genuine love. There can be no family without this. There can be camaraderie. There can be uh, proximity. Uh, but there can't be family. There can't be friendship. There could be uh, temporary companionship. There could be maybe, you know, again, close proximity, but it can't be true friendship. All healthy relationships depend on it. What is it? L is for loyalty. It's for loyalty. You probably thought L was for love, but it's for loyalty in these traits. Now, thankfully, there is a spectacular uh, place in Scripture to learn a lot about loyalty. And it happens to be one of my absolute favorite places in all of the Bible. Only God could tell one of the greatest stories ever told in 85 verses. I mean, the book of Ruth is a spectacular, unbelievably rich book in the Bible. It's very short. It seems like uh, it's coming at you 100 miles an hour, but if you just spend time and just meditate, I mean, one of the most rewarding things in my life was to preach through the book of Ruth. I mean, it was 
I mean, I will forever be grateful for it. I love this book of the Bible so very much. Uh, so let's talk about what the book of Ruth will teach us with regards to loyalty. So verse 1, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, Now it came to pass in the days the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. There was a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, who went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So we have an Israelite that goes to Moab. Now let's just make sure we understand what's going on. Moab is where Israelites don't go because the Moabites are the offspring of Lot and his incestuous relationship with his daughters and that whole fiasco from Genesis, the book of Genesis. And the Moabites have been enemies of the Israelites uh, ever since the Exodus when they were trying to travel through Moab and the Moabites refused to not only give them passageway but to even allow them uh, bread or water and God took it very personally, very personally. And so uh, there's a place in the book of Deuteronomy that says no Moabite, because of what they did, no Moabite will be allowed into the fellowship of God will be allowed into the camp, which meant would be allowed in with the, the children of Israel for 10 generations. That's how angry God was with the Moabites. So that gives you an idea of what's going on. So here we have an Israelite moving to Moab. The name of this man, verse 2, is Elimelech. His wife's name is Naomi. The two sons were Malon and Chilion, or Kilion. Now, they were Aphrodites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. So what happens is there's a famine in the land, and Elimelech takes his family to Moab because there's, he hears there's food in Moab, and so it would appear that what he's doing is going to Moab as, is a responsible thing to do because he's doing what he has to do to care for his family. That's not what he's doing because uh, although it is a man's responsibility to provide for his family, he is never to provide for his family in such a way as to uh, violate the commandments of God or to put his family in spiritual peril, which is exactly what this is, so that's why I give you the background, so you would understand. All right, verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. You see, it's very rapid fire. Things just happen quickly, so you have to read slow and think in between. He dies, and she was left with her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there for about 10 years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the women survived their two husbands, their sons. She survived her sons and her husband. So now what you have is 10 years into this scenario, you now have three widows, no children, and it is a perilous situation. In this culture, three women with no children, I mean, obviously, uh, female children wouldn't have been much of a help, but at least if there were some young sons, that would have been a possibility or a future. But no children, three widows, 
uh, no help from relatives. They had zero chance of survival, zero chance that this was going to go good. This was a disastrous situation. So they probably had enough to live for a short amount of time. You know, whatever the husbands did, whatever agriculture they were in, there was probably enough to carry them for several months, but they had to come up with a quick plan and they had to execute it. Otherwise, they were going to be goners. Uh, They probably wouldn't even have starved to death. They probably would have been, you know, taken advantage of or enslaved or something worse before that even happened. So they had to make a move and they had to do it quickly. Now, what Naomi does is she hears that things have gotten better back in Judah, back in Bethlehem. And so she tells her two daughters that, she's going, that you need to return to your families. And again, she's doing the same thing Elimelech did. In other words, it looks good on the outside. And, and here, I don't fault Naomi for this. I mean, this is the best thing for them. They're Moabites. They're not going to be welcome in Bethlehem. They're not going to be welcome in Judah. They're going to be outsiders. There's going to be a lot of problems. And they're young. They're widows. And the, any Israelite that is uh, walking with God or has any uh, intention of following God is not going to marry them because God has commanded his people not to marry Moabite women. So... Obviously, the thing for them to do is to go back, stay in Moab, go back to their families and where they have a chance to remarry and where they have a chance to have a life together. So verse 14 is key. Look at verse 14. Then, so she tells them they need to go back. They lifted up their voices and they wept again. So they're weeping because now, you know, look, this is a terrible situation. We've got to, you know, we got to disband. We got to, you know, Leave everything. We've got to start over. It's very emotional. They're weeping. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law. That's a symbol of she's saying goodbye. She's going back to her family. But Ruth, and then you want to underline the word, clung to her. Ruth clung to her. Ruth was different. She, as you know, many of you know the story, she was not willing to go back. Verse 15, and she said, look, Naomi's speaking here. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. You need to do what she's doing. You need to go back to what you know, where you'll be welcome, where you have possibility, where you have a future. And Ruth says these these unbelievable words that have become so famous and find their way into so many different Uh, whether it be wedding ceremonies or plaques on the wall or whatever it may be. In verse 16, she says, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you, for wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more so, which is just the words of covenant, if anything but death parts you and me that is the words of a covenant that's what a covenant means so let's talk about a few things that we can learn from these words that Ruth says to Naomi and I want you to really try to get your head around the unlikelihood that somebody in this situation would do this how 
abnormal, counterintuitive, uh, just uh, what she does could not be more opposite. I mean, if there's a thousand people in this situation, 999 of them would do what Orpah did without even thinking about it. And yet Ruth does really the unthinkable. So she can teach us that we need to be loyal to family. Loyal to family. That God, the Bible teaches, not only plants us, as, we, as we've seen on Sunday mornings in Acts 17, that God not only plants us in our dwelling places, but He also, uh, in the book of Jeremiah, and the book of Isaiah, talks about how God plants us relationally. He plants us amongst our people. That the people that we're around, God, obviously, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if God puts you geographically where you are, then God also put you relationally where you are. He puts you amongst the people that are around you. Hence, the people that you, so your family, he's the one that, the Bible says that God uh, authored our heritage. So that's a direct uh, statement about our family. Now, Ruth is teaching us to be loyal to her family. We have to understand that she stands alone and possesses nothing. She literally is completely alone and possesses absolutely nothing in this situation. No God has called her. No deity has promised to bless her. Um, There's no human being that's coming to her aid. There's no plan B. I mean, if she sets out on this 100-mile journey with her mother-in-law, she's never even been to Bethlehem. She's never been to Judah. She has, uh, she's probably, uh, a lot of these decisions are based on the conversations that she had with her husband, the things she's learned from living with Naomi and Elimelech and so on and so forth. And so she has some ideas, obviously, from, you know, being married to somebody from Israel for 10 years, but she doesn't know, you know, Lisa's never been to Hawaii. She probably knows more about Hawaii than you do for being married to me for 30 years, but she's never been there. So she, she has ideas in her head, but it's all come through listening to me and looking at all these pictures of me growing up and these memories that I have and so on and so forth. And so in the same way, but there's no guarantee. And she's not going with her husband. She's going alone. Not only has Ruth by leaving, broken with her family, her country, her faith. But she's also reversed allegiance. She is aligning herself. She is putting her allegiance in her mother-in-law. Now think about how how this put the posture this puts her in. It would make perfect sense for a young woman to put her allegiance in a man because in this culture, everything is male-dominated and male-controlled. She's putting her allegiance in someone who is utterly as culturally helpless as she is. So the only way that I thought about this, the only way that I could illustrate this to you in our culture, it would be like you placing your allegiance in your preschool child. Literally, 
That's how helpless Naomi is in this culture. And yet that's what she clings to. And that would be, you know, insane to do that. And yet that's what she does. Now, a young woman has committed herself to the life of an old woman in a world where life depends on men. I mean life. Like everything. She has no legal rights. She, there, the law, there's not even laws in place that would protect her. Laws are only exist to protect men. So there's no security in Naomi at all. That's what I want you to understand. And yet, that's what she does. She chooses the hardest possible road forward. Now, how many times in your life would you personally choose the hardest possible road forward? And you wouldn't do that unless you were utterly convinced that that was going to be the right road or that it was going to somehow, you know, lead to what it is you, if you wanted something bad enough and you knew that this was the way to get it, then you would you might pursue it, but how could Ruth know that this would yield anything? She had literally no guarantees. God has not come and spoken to her and said, listen, you follow Naomi and I'll take care of you. That has not happened. Just because you know the end of the story, don't don't weave things in that aren't in the story. She doesn't know any of that, anything. But here's the thing. She's being loyal to her commitment of marriage. And that's what you need to understand. Why would she do this? Why would someone in this situation do this? How can we, and, and we can know because we can understand the culture that will lead us to the answer. You see, marriage in this culture is not at all like marriage in our culture. In this culture, you didn't marry a person, you married a family. Now, some of you in here would say, well, you know, that's how I feel. You know, I, I didn't just get a spouse, I got their family. and Their family was, you know, it's like my family, and my family is like, you are totally missing the point. Because what I'm about to say is when you're going to go, okay, never mind, it's nothing like that. In this culture, when Ruth's husband died, or let's say Orpah's husband died first. We don't know if they died on the same day, but let's suppose one of them died first. Automatically, they would only be a widow for a moment. They would then become the wife of the brother. You tracking with that? See, no, that's weird. We're not doing that. You're going to go to jail, or at least maybe you should. I don't know, right? Yes. First of all, because it's not like, you know, your brother lost his wife, and then you lost your husband, and then you two are like, well, hey, we're here. So, no, no, he's still married. But now you've lost your husband, and so then you go under him automatically because 
you didn't marry him. You married his family, and that's how that works, that you're under that family. So what, what, it, what you have to understand is that this is how they understood marriage. So she's connected to this family. When she married her husband, she married this family. Now, there's only one person left in the family, and who is that person? Naomi. And so what she's doing is she's saying, I am going to be loyal to the vows that I took no matter how crazy it may seem, no matter how dangerous it may be, no matter how risky it may be, no matter I committed to this and so I'm in it. That's what's happening here. She is, by marriage committed herself to this family, and so she's all in. All in. On every level. She's, she has, in her mind, adopted the posture that I am, as long as there's a member of this family left, I'm going to be with that person. Whatever, whatever God that this family worships, I'm going to worship because I committed to this thing. I'm in. And so, I mean, this is, this is like loyalty at the highest level. In our culture, we would think, you know, that it was uh, loyalty to the point of, of lacking wisdom. But that's just our ignorance about, you know, being able to uh, exist in this culture. If you understand this culture, then it, it is just sheer, unadulterated beautiful loyalty at any cost because that's what she committed to do. Many biblical scholars say that, and this is a, this, you, you really have to think about this. Like the first time I read this quote, I was like, hold on a second. But multiple people have said, this decision by Ruth is the most radical decision that an individual makes in the Old Testament. That's pretty crazy. Because there's some very radical decisions that, that people made in the Old Testament. But that's how radical this is. And so, if if you didn't know everything I just said and all you knew was like, like it could be that Naomi, you know, has all these rich relatives that or Naomi's old house that her and Elimelech left when they went to Moab is still there. And she's gotten word that her family's been, you know, growing all the crops and everything. And so it's a guaranteed you know, when you get back to Bethlehem, it's already guaranteed that you have a place to live, food to eat. All your needs are going to be taken care of. Let's suppose that was the case. It would be insane for her to do this from the simple fact that she's about to travel a hundred miles by foot with another woman. The I don't even have a way to illustrate to you the danger that that represents. Two women with no protection in this culture traveling across borders a hundred miles on foot. How 
How many nights the, the, the two ladies in this room that are in the best shape, a hundred miles, how many nights are you going to have to sleep in the wilderness in a hundred miles? I mean, this is insane. That's insane right there. And it shows you how desperate Naomi is because she's about to trail off by herself. But see, here's the thing. Naomi's old. And I'm not saying that when you're old, your life doesn't matter because I'm old. But what I am saying is that, you know, when everything else is gone and everything else is done and I'm the only one left standing, uh, you know, I mean, risk kind of takes a little bit of a different you know, wait, but not for Ruth. And so she's like, no, I'm going to go with you. I mean, they got to go through the Hebron Valley. I mean, I, I've studied this, this entire thing in depth. I've looked at the route they had to take. I mean, the terrain they had to go over. It's crazy. It's crazy. So she, she shows us the importance of loyalty to family. Then, number two, she shows us loyalty to friends. And this is something that would be easy to miss. Because what you have to see is that when Ruth says to Naomi, your people will be my people, she doesn't just mean family. Because she means people. So she means the people that she's going with Naomi back to where Naomi grew up. So the people she grew up with, the people that she did life with, the people she spends time with. See, she spent her whole entire life in Bethlehem. And so if I, if I marry somebody and then agree that we're going to move back to her hometown then what I am doing is I'm immersing myself into her world. You know, because we're going to, you know, there's the school. I went to elementary school there, and that's where I, you know, first, you know, was a cheerleader over there. And, you know, and, and then that's the gymnasium where, and you know, and all where she doesn't, you know, I wouldn't have any memories there, but now I'm immersing myself. This isn't two people starting a life. No, this is her going into somebody else's complete world. And so it makes us, you know, we, the reason why I draw this out is not because it's necessarily uh, super important uh, in the outcome of this story, but I think it's super important in the outcome of this story because this is a big problem in this story right here. This is a big problem for us. Good gracious. So if I got five minutes to talk about friendships, I'm going to do that. We can only learn about our true friends who they are in adversity. Would you agree with that? Yes, indeed. Now, you know this, uh, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or offend anybody, but it could happen. Um, so there's a, there's, there's a lot of things that puzzle me about friendships. And the confusion that happens in them. But one of, one of, one of the phenomenons of, of our modern culture and, and how social media has uh, really affected our understanding of this conversation is that the scenario where every so often, and, and it, when I see this, I, 
I feel something and I don't even know how to process it. Like everything in my spirit says, wow, this is so wrong. And I'm sure that some of you have done this and I don't mean to, you know, you know, I'm not trying to hurt you or wound you or I'm just I just want you to understand that when you put this thing on social media and you say, you know, something has caused you frustration and you've had to engage with the reality that all the people that say you're that they're your friends are really not your friends. And so then you're you put this thing on social media and you say, like, if you're really my friend, you'll read this whole thing. And it's like, you know, this many million miles long. And then when you get to the and then which. I'm not reading. OK. Just because of the way you started that, I'm not reading it. Because I already know this is going bad. But if I go to the bottom, what you say is, now, if you're really my friend, you're going to repost this or you're going to do this. I can't even begin to tell you how weird that is. There are so many things wrong with that. It makes me feel really, really, really sad. Like, did you think Apparently, you thought all these people were your friends. Why would you think that? You wouldn't post that if you didn't think that. Like, you're hurt because all these people on social media aren't your friends. That's really scary. If you didn't know they're not your friends, they're not your friends. And you should know that. And if you try to tell me that the only way I can prove to be your friend or the only way I can prove to be a Christian is if I do what you tell me to do. I'm not doing it. There's no way I'm doing it. It's not happening. Because it's, it's, it's playing into this very dysfunctional, sad situation. That's not a healthy situation. I'm just telling you that. So I'm sorry, you know. Erase that junk off your page or something because so people don't, oh, they did. I mean, you know, but, and people do it all the time. And I'm sure there's people right now in our church that have it on there. And, you know, so, but it's bad. So, I mean, at least I have the courage to tell you that. Nobody has as many friends as they think they have. So maybe that makes you feel better. I mean, all of us. We all think we have more friends than we actually do. So here's the point I'm trying to make, okay? Like, I'm just hoping that if we're not all there, we'll all be there. Let's all get there together, okay? That whatever you got going on social media and friendships have nothing to do with each other, okay? You got that? Nothing. You will never know who is or isn't your friend via social media. And if you need me to tell you that, I mean, you, I'm serious. I mean this. Like, you should really, like, talk to somebody. For real. You should talk to somebody. Not me, somebody else. <laughs> I 
All right, I got to stop. Okay, so. All right. Turn off the truth filter. Okay. So, but here is the truth. The truth is, is that none of us, okay, forget the social media thing. In reality, none of us have as many friends as we think we have. Okay? So, we're all in the same boat in this regard. There are people in your life that you think are your friends or you hope are your friends, but you don't know. And that's okay. And you're not going to know until adversity comes. Okay? And then here's the thing. Uh, in one adversity in this area is not going to answer everything about all of your friends. Because you're not going to have one adversity that's going to blanket across all of your friendships if you have any kind of broad spectrum of friendships. Does that make any sense? Okay? So, like, let's suppose that you have just recently found yourself single, right? Now, you're a woman, you've just found yourself single, and a lot of people care about that, and a lot of people, um, you know, share your grief in that and want to support you and love you through that, but you have a group of friends that are males who cannot do for you what your female friends can. Does that make sense? So that adversity right there is not going to answer. You, you can't use that adversity to say, well, you know, all these, these people over here aren't really my friends. No, because they can't, right? Right? Okay? So that we can be personal here in this situation and go, yeah, we live in this right now. But now, if you and your husband go through an adversity together, then you're going to have a, a much more broader spectrum to be able to gauge who is or who is not your friend. You see what I'm saying? So you can't just, because you're just not, you're not being realistic. If you just go through something and you're just having a pity party and then everybody who doesn't run and you know, join your pity party is not your friend. Well, you're just a big baby and no one wants to be your friend anyway. Okay? So I'm talking about, you know, you got to be realistic about this. But in the, at the end of the day, if we're realistic about it and we go through adversity, we're, we're going to find out that not everybody we think is our friend or we hope is our friend really is. And that's okay. I mean... The way I look at it is, uh, you know, the value of friendship is not found in the uh, quantity. It's found in the quality. I mean, you can, you, can, you, can, you can do well with one really good, healthy friend. You can, you can do well. You know... I would prefer that we would all be in situations where we have some diversity in our life. But, you know, 
If you've got one really good, true friend, then what a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. Thank God for that. And here's why this is so important biblically. See, so now, now I'm, I'm not just picking on you. I'm trying to help us, right? So what I'm about to say is, is 100% true according to the Bible. And so now you can think back and say, this is why it's so bad if we aren't thinking rightly about this and we're, you know, upset because the people on our social media accounts aren't our true friends. The reason that's so bad is because they will always influence and often, and I would say most often, determine the direction and quality of our lives. Research proves across the board, whether, you're, whether you are a Jesus follower and you live committed to Him, or you're uh, pagan out in the world just doing your own thing, the research is consistent across the board uh, that especially starting in adolescence, especially from like adolescence to, to pre-marriage, so like teenage years all the way up until you got married, but it doesn't end there, but I mean especially there, that in that quadrant of time, uh, more often than not, your friends have a greater influence on you than your parents. Now, some of you parents, you don't like that. You take offense to that, and you think that's not true. And if you just want to keep burying your head in the sand, go right ahead. But it is true. And you're not going to change it. And I promise you it's true for your kids. And if you're sitting there saying it's not, you're in denial. It's true. It is true. And so you better be very, 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 very involved in that process. Because who your kids align their life with is... You should think of who your kids' close friends are as almost like as if they were choosing, uh, you know, surrogate parents. That's how important that is. Research also shows that... uh, They have a greater, of church-going people, friends have a greater influence on us than our own convictions. And now you say to yourself, well, what does that mean? Well, all that means is that peer pressure works. See, Christian kids do bad things all the time because people influence them to do it. You know why? All they're doing is saying that I am more influenced by this person than I am by my own convictions. And then when they do it, they're brokenhearted and they go, I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I did it anyway. And all, and instead of you being so frustrated because they made a bad decision, you should take that moment and learn the power of friendship because that's what that's teaching you. And for all of us, There's not a person in this room that can't say that there has been times in our life. It probably hasn't been that long since friendships had a greater influence in your life than God did. Because how long has it been since you did something you shouldn't have done 
and you're with a friend. And it could be, you might think it's harmless. Like you might have, uh, you might have told a little white lie because you didn't want to hurt your friend's feelings. You just chose your friend over God right there. You got that? Right there. God said, thou shalt not lie, and you just lied because you didn't want to hurt your friend's feelings. See? So now you understand. I, that's why I hurt your feelings. No, I'm just kidding. But it's true. You see? So we do this all the time. We, we, we underestimate the power and the influence of the relationships around us. We say things that are so absurd. If you think that you can hang around someone and not be influenced by them, you are insane. That is so untrue. And it's totally unbiblical. The Bible says negative on that. It won't happen. It can't happen. You got to be careful. Listen, and here, here's the thing. I'm telling you as your pastor that, that I, my job forces me into situations where I have to, you know, spend time in circumstances and situations with people that maybe I necessarily don't want to be in or shouldn't be in or whatever the case may be. And here's the thing. If you think that doesn't influence me or affect me, you're crazy. And so what, if I don't have other influences around me, so that these other influences are continually safeguarding me from these influences. Because if you have a vacuum in your life of influence, you're going to get sucked right down. And fi- I mean, just you're, there, you, you have no hope. We are, in, we, are, we are acceptance magnets because God made us to desire acceptance from Him. So you got to be ultra careful about this. This is why you you, you got to be very wise when it comes to things like relational evangelism. Which is just a Christian terminology for, you know, I'm going to live on the wild side for a moment. And act like I'm trying to get somebody to come to church or come to Christ. or Like, you got to be careful. If I'm trying to get somebody to come to, if I'm spending time around somebody to try to, bring them to Christ, that's great, and I do that, and I want to do that, and I want you to do that, but I'm also very keenly aware of the fact that, you know, I'm monitoring if what they're doing is affecting me. And if what they're doing is affecting me, I need to take a step back. I got too close. And the people among us here that are very effective at evangelism are very good at that. They're able to move into situations and, and influence people without being influenced. But you gotta be, you gotta, you gotta pay attention. Don't just go in thinking everything's, you know. So the Bible says in Proverbs 13, 20, I, do I have to read this? You all know this, right? Okay. You've heard me say it a thousand times. In Proverbs 27, 6, you can write that down. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. 27.6, that's a great principle right there too. So, family, friends, and then Ruth shows us to be loyal in faith. See, she also says, your people should be my people, 
And then she goes another level. She says, and your God will be my God. Now notice, here's the key understanding. When she says, your God will be my God, there's two things you've got to pay attention to. The first thing is, is that the G is capital. Because this is a Moabite speaking. And she comes from a land that worships a multitude of false gods. So it tells us two things. The G is capital and the word is singular. Which means she's been influenced over these 10 years. Because she has grown, where she's grown up, her whole entire life, it would have been little g, plural, gods. Because that's what she knows. If she would have went home, she would have went home and back to a family that worshipped all kinds of false gods. The God of the harvest, the God of fertility, the God of health, the God of this, the God of that. And so, but she says, your capital G God will be my God. And so, it tells us something about her understanding of what she's saying. Now, in this moment, her past is against her because she's a Moabite. So her whole life has been spent doing things that are counter to what she ought to be doing. She hasn't been following God. She hasn't been obeying God. So when she, when she moves closer to God, every step she takes closer to God comes with the revelation of all the things she did in the past that she shouldn't have done. You know, that was the process all of us went through. See, when, when God started drawing me close, that's when the realization came of all the things that, that in my life that were wrong and shouldn't have been there. And, and all the shame and the guilt. and the, Before God drew me in, I wasn't guilty or ashamed because I didn't know I was supposed to be. I didn't know I had a reason to. And so her past is against her. In other words, she's, she's walking down a journey of illumination into things that she wishes weren't there. But not only that, her present is against her. Because she's presently in a, in a disastrous situation. So she's got all the mistakes of the past, all the problems of the present, and her future, there's not one thing about her future that looks bright. She's going to a place where she's automatically going to be rejected, where she's automatically going to be an outcast, where she, she's not going, she, she already knows that there's not going to be, there's not going to be uh, uh, suitors there to be a husband to her or whatever the case may be because of, her, because of her lineage, because of her background, because of who she is. She's got a lot of problems. And so in all of this, we see that Ruth is the least likely, subordinary, last person on earth anyone would ever expect God to do something great with. Just like me and you. You know, you know, the, you know the last thing you knew about you before you became a Christian? The very last five seconds of your life lost. Whenever the day was you got saved. Have you ever thought about the five seconds before you got saved? Because I already, I wasn't there, don't know what happened, but I know what that was like. In those five seconds, you were keenly aware of all the things that were wrong with you and the disastrous situation you were in and the hopeless debt that you had amassed and the there's not one person, if you were not in that state, then you're not saved. Right? 
The Bible says that God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were in our most pathetic, sinful condition, we were actively sinning against him that Christ died for us. That's the situation. Ruth is, Ruth is just painting, the, the, the story of Ruth just paints this beautiful picture that we follow. We, we think we're following this young lady through this story, and God is just showing us a mirror. That's all this story is, is a mirror. The more you learn about Ruth, the more you go, that's me. That's who I am. That's exactly what happened in my situation. And then Ruth, fast forward, they, they survived the 100 year of 100 mile journey. It might have taken 100 years. The 100 mile journey home. They get home. Um, it's harvest season. They're, of course, starving, broke, pathetic. They walk up. You know, the, the men are out working in the field. And so Ruth goes out and starts gleaning in the field, which just means. You know, that was the, that's God, God's uh, perfect, we don't have time to talk about it, but God's perfect uh, welfare system. There's no welfare in the Bible, but there's care for the poor. But care for the poor only works uh, for poor who are willing to work for their care. Got that? There's no home delivery of gleaning. You know what happened to all the people who were too lazy to go out in the field and glean? They died. Just saying. So she starts gleaning in the field. And you know the story that there's a redeemer. There's a kinsman redeemer. There's somebody in the family because, again, Ruth has married the family. And so there's this man named Boaz who is a wealthy, successful you know, landowner, and he's got people working for him and crops and all sorts of things going on. And he is related to Naomi. And so he is a, a, a perfect picture of a redeemer because he, he has an opportunity to, to, you know, fudge the law a little bit, cheat on his taxes, but he's very upright and straight, and so he doesn't do that. And so there's one person between him and her, and so he goes and says to that man who's actually ahead of him in the order to redeem Ruth, and he says, look, you know, uh, you're the next one in line, and so if you don't, then I will, and you know the story, and the guy's like, I don't want anything to do with it, and so, but he does everything according to the rules, and then he redeems Ruth. He marries Ruth. He brings Ruth under his wing, under his care, and so there's this moment where all of everything that Ruth, everything in Ruth's life was a disaster. And then in one foul swoop, it's all made right. But here's what you have to realize about that. Is that Boaz didn't just redeem Ruth. He redeemed her along with all the baggage of her past. You see, he didn't just resolve her current situation. Which is, this is why this is so important. Redemption is, there's a difference between redemption and solution. Solution is I have a flat tire and you come along and with a spare and put it on and down the road I go. That's solution. Redemption is I have a flat tire and you come and with a tow truck and tow my 
car, my truck somewhere and put all new tires on it, that's, you, that's redeeming my situation. See, there's a difference. Boaz doesn't just, isn't the solution to her immediate needs. He's redemption for all of her needs. He, he takes responsibility for all the problems of her past, all the needs of her present, and every need she'll ever have in the future. It's total redemption. That's, what, that's the beautiful picture of redemption. He made everything that was wrong in her life right in one instant. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it should. The moment they got married, whew, man. You ask Ruth, Ruth, you owe anybody anything? Nope. Not only are you debt free, but now you have access to unlimited resources. Man. All our mistakes, all of our troubles, all of her regrets, they're all washed away. That's redemption. He's the kinsman redeemer. He's not the kinsman solution. So now what we have is this Moabite woman. This, remember, five seconds ago, she was the least likely subordinary Last person on earth we would expect God to do something great with, right? Five minutes later, I'm saying she's been redeemed and this, she's married. And see, what happened was God comes along. Five seconds earlier, we were keenly aware of all the things that were wrong in our life and all the things that we wish we could go back and change that we couldn't and all the regrets and the people we hurt and the debt we've amassed and, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And then God comes in and He reveals Himself. He, what does He do? He adopts us into this body, His bride. He redeems us through marriage. Yeah. We, the first thing we're going to do when we get to heaven is we're going to celebrate a wedding feast. That's what's waiting prepared for us. And so then Ruth, who was once absolutely, utterly hopeless, then now is married and redeemed. And not only that, then she gives birth to a son. And the remarkable thing is that if the story ended here, it would be remarkable. But the, the crazy thing is the cursed Moabite is the great-grandmother of King David in the lineage of Jesus. And so when you get to Matthew chapter 1 and you read the lineage of Christ, you, you see the name Ruth there. And you're like, what in the world? How in the world? Only God could write such a story. And here's the thing. All of this is because of her loyalty. Because of her loyalty, what God did, he didn't, just, he didn't use her not to bear a son, but to change the history of the world. 
And it all began with this act of utter loyalty. I'm just trying to get you to see that, like, if you, if you are a person tonight that the people around you that know you and love you, if they would describe you as a loyal person, then that is, there are few things people could say about you that are a better compliment than that. Loyalty is extraordinary. This story illustrates the power of loyalty to change not only your situation, your life, but generations. Loyalty. This simple little principle that we just don't think about or, or don't pay attention to or don't, it, don't prioritize or pour ourselves into. Loyalty. It, if people, if you're loyal, it's probably the first or second most valuable thing about you to the people who love you. It makes you... Uh, a pleasure to love. Loyal people are easy to love. You know why? Because they're safe to love. They're safe. If I know you're loyal, I'll give my heart to you. If I know you're loyal. And you do the same. And the reason for all this is because God's a loyal God. Whenever we love the fact that he'll never leave us or forsake us, and we always equate that to the reason that's such a valuable promise to us is because of the protection that it offers. But have you ever thought about what does that tell us about God? That, ver that promise is not necessarily telling us that God is a protective father as much as it's telling us that he's a loyal dad, that he's loyal. Because here's what's embedded in that promise is the fact that there's going to be lots of times in my life that I don't deserve to be stuck with. There's going to be a lot of times in my life where I deserve to be left and I deserve to be forsaken. But you know why God doesn't do that? It's because He's loyal. That's why he doesn't do that. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but maybe the reason you'd be hard-pressed to think about something that you are more grateful for, that you love more about God than the fact that he's loyal, because it would be hard to do. So here's our, here's our one simple, beautiful takeaway. God's not loyal to us because we're loyal to Him. Thank God for that. But He's loyal to us because Jesus was loyal to Him. You see, when, when was Ruth's moment of loyalty? Was the moment that Naomi said, you know, you should go home. You should, you should go with Orpah and you should go back to Moab. That's the sensible thing to do, right? That was the hinge point of the whole story. 
What's the hinge point of our story? It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And blood's pouring out of his capillaries. And he's like, if there's any way this cup could be taken from me, if there's any way I could get out of this, if anyone else of a billion people, nobody's taken this cup, but one person was loyal enough to do what no one else would do. One person said, you know what? If this cup can't be taken from me, I'm taking the cup. It was that moment of loyalty that changed everything for me and you. That, without that moment, we're doomed. And the significance of that moment is not just what we receive as a result of that moment in salvation, but it's the reality that because of that moment, God's loyalty to me, thank God, is not dependent on my behavior. Because God wasn't loyal to me in that moment. Jesus didn't. Jesus wasn't holding that cup thinking, you know what? I'm going to take this cup for Tony. If you think that, you're wrong. You're not reading your Bible right. He took that cup for his father. He was loyal to his father. We're the recipient. The, the, the father's plan was redemption of the children through the blood of the son. The father was, the son was loyal to the dad. And because of the son's loyalty to the dad, God is forever loyal to me. Because if you twist it around and you think God took that cup for you, then, then you got to behave for, the, for him to be loyal to you. You see, because when he was holding that cup, what if he would have said, hey, you know what? I don't want to do this. I want out of this. And then he thought about you, and he thought about how all the times you were going to forsake him, and all the times you were going to blaspheme him, and all the times you were going to let other relationships be more important than him, and all the times you were going to turn your back on him and let him down. He'd have thrown the cup down. The reason he didn't throw the cup down is he didn't think of me. He thought of his father, and he was loyal to his father. And his father's plan is the reason why we don't have to worry tonight. Listen, you can't behave your way out of His grace because you're not there because you're good. We're there because He's good. He was, He made the impossible decision of loyalty. And in that moment, we were forever hidden under the shadow of that decision, protected by that. That's the reason why God's loyal to us. Now, if you let that sit on you for a minute, you're going to deal with a lot of condemnation that you have in your head. It will go away. Because every time something goes wrong in your life and you start trying to categorize, what's God mad at me about? Why is God punishing me? Well, you got a gospel problem. You think, you're, you, you think you're behaving for his loyalty. That's not the gospel. That's works. That means that when things are going good, you got something to boast about. Thank God for the loyalty of Jesus.